Well, it's a little unusual this morning. We're usually heavy on this side, and now we're heavy on this side today. I'm not sure it happened. It's opposite day. Taking turns. It's good to see everybody. Looking forward to our time and God's Word together this morning. The title this morning is Warnings from Jesus About Proper Service. Our Lord Jesus, as He discipled, taught his disciples while he was in his earthly ministry here, there were periods of time when he gave them warning and tried to shape them and protect them from some pitfalls that they had been experiencing. And we're going to be in one of those passages today. But I really want us to appreciate the context because in the last few weeks we have um, been experiencing a shift in the Gospel of Mark. Leading up to chapter 8, Jesus was not very clear and explicit on his identity and what was going to happen. In some ways, yes, he was clear and he preached the kingdom of God and he preached the presence of the kingdom through him. But the fact of his death and the fact that he was going to be the suffering servant, that was not incredibly clear. But as you reach... Chapter 8, he begins to make this clear. So look at chapter 8 of Mark. Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. I just want to, I'm not going to read all these verses, but I want to at least make sure we're really appreciating what's happening and the effect on the disciples. Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you, emphasis there, say that I am? Peter answered to him and said, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This was a shock for his disciples. To us, it's you know common, but to them, they're like, "No, this does not make sense. It did not compute. You know, a one plus one did not equal two to them. Here, they just did not click. It was foreign to them. So he was using a math they'd never heard of. So, verse thirty-two, and he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And it goes on, and then you have the transfiguration. Uh, this awesome time that Peter, James, and John with the Lord Jesus on the mountaintop saw Jesus transfigured. Peter, it says, was overwhelmed, and he said things he felt stupid about because he just didn't know what to say, so he said something. And then, as they come down off of the mountain the first scene that greeted them was the rest of the disciples aside from Peter, James, and John, and perhaps the larger group of disciples outside the twelve, and they were arguing with somebody. There was a fight. 
There was tension in the air. And as you see, there's also this father with his boy who is demon-possessed. And he's distraught because his disciples, Jesus' disciples were not able to heal his son. And he'd heard so many things about the fact that, that Jesus and his disciples were healing and casting out demons. And yet here they had failed. And he was upset to the point to where he was, even as he was talking to Jesus, his faith was struggling. So as we move on down through the passage, Jesus again foretells of his death and resurrection to his disciples. And then right after that, there is another argument between the disciples on the way as they went somewhere and they were arguing about who was the greatest disciple. And again, it's just as a reminder to us, is we never intend for these arguments to happen. At least most of us, I suppose, maybe some. But most of us don't. And yet we get embroiled in this, this debate with other people, whether about our greatness, about our ideas, about our influence, about what we think is right. And it's a very embarrassing time. And then um, Jesus begins to teach his disciples about what true greatness was. In the midst of this teaching time, John brings up a question. And he, perhaps as he's thinking about the argument they had just had and Jesus teaching them about true greatness, he thought of this other man that he and the disciples had seen who was going to cast out um, a demon from somebody and they tried to stop him because he was not one of them. And Jesus again teaches them about the kingdom of God and about unity and about the things that you fight over and the things you don't fight over. And that leads us to the context of where we are today. And I, I want. If I was trying to, as I was thinking about this, I was trying to understand maybe the human experience here, and I felt like for the disciples, this was like the confusing years of middle school. And here, with middle school, not here, but in, during middle school, um, it can be very confusing. Your body is changing, new feelings, new thoughts, new frustrations, new levels of responsibility. All these things coming together and it's just, you know, we just know in our culture that those middle school years, kids can be very upset and confused and frustrated and moody. Now, we must say that we can go through periods like that as an adult where we feel like we're going through middle school all over again where things are changing and our body feels differently than it ever has. Things are more confusing. Our superiors or our peers are all acting differently and it's, it's frustrating, it's confusing, it's angering. And that's what I feel like is happening for these disciples. So much has changed for them. It is so confusing. Here they have this, their, their Lord who they expected to be a conquering king. And he is telling them that he is going to be killed and murdered. And that he must do this. And this is the right thing for them to do. And, and they're struggling for what is great and what means something. And why they're living their lives. And, and why they're following Jesus. And how they're relating to other people. And it's just a confusing mess for them during this time. 
And it is necessary we go through those times. Sometimes we need the teaching of to bring clarity to some basic issues. And again, Jesus is continuing to do that, and he's doing that in our text today. He just brings clarity to some basic issues. And he's talking more big picture. He doesn't delve into every example and instance. He gives the big picture. So part of what makes the verses we're looking at today sometimes confusing is we want to go right down to the specific application, and Jesus is instead giving us a big picture principle. And then we have the Holy Spirit for us that begins to apply these truths in the specific context. So let's go ahead and open up in prayer. God, we ask for your help this morning. Is Although these truths are clear, they are confusing. And they are hard sometimes as we struggle with different aspects of our lives. In spirit, we rely upon you to guide us and lead us and make this clear for us in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, first of all today, don't cause other people to sin. Basic enough, right? So here in Mark chapter 9, verse 42, but if this is this really seems to be the same conversation that Jesus was just teaching about greatness and teaching about who we get along with and who we don't, says, but if you cause one of these little ones to sin, Jesus referred to the children or the little ones back a few verses earlier. And so he's continuing the conversation. But if you cause one of these little ones to sin, who trust in me to fall into sin, it will be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. And these are the ones... Oops, I don't want that one yet. Sorry. So here we have Jesus' warning to not cause these little ones to sin. Now, what can be a little bit confusing... As we talk about these little ones, yes, it does apply to children who believe in Jesus, children by age. But it also, um, this, the word that is used here in the original and how they spoke it then could have the idea of servants. And so basically lowly ones. Or it could be also the idea of those who are immature. So really we can extend the meeting to including children, but also those of God's children who are either immature or young in the faith or God's children who are weak because of the circumstances they are going through, they are struggling. And what Jesus is teaching here is this idea of being sensitive that we watch over our actions that we do not cause those people to sin. Now, I want to look at this phrase sin, or this word sin, or falling into sin. And I want to look at it at other places in Mark, and then one other place in the New Testament. First place is Mark chapter 4, verses 16 through 17, in the parable of the sower. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, 
But endure for a while, then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And that's that word for sin in our passage today. Next, Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Same word, offense there, is to sin or to stumble. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, one of the classic passages in the New Testament here, dealing with causing other believers to stumble. It says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, food, talking about food offered to idols in this context. Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So here we've looked at a few different translations of the word fall into sin in our text today. One was fall away. One was offense or offend, and the other was translated stumble, but all the same word. Now, the, the Greek word is scandalized. Now, you can't press the similarities with how it sounds in English too much, but there is at least a little bit of um, overlap there to scandalize somebody, to, to upset them, to cause some form of brokenness in a way we should not have caused to improperly discourage them, to harm them spiritually is the idea here. And sometimes that results in they commit a sin. So let's get an idea of the people in context that this may refer to. First of all, I want to think of when... Jesus is rebuking Peter. We're going to go back to Mark chapter 8. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I have underlined here. But turning and seeing his disciples... He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So in the context, Jesus very clearly, and Mark makes it clear, that Jesus was concerned for the effect of Peter's actions and words upon the other disciples around. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, this is as they just came down the mountain from the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, he throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. 
Here a man who was, in this case, greatly destabilized because of the ineffectiveness of the disciples. And then, just a few verses later, Mark chapter 9 and verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. We tried to stop him, underlined there. Because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. So here are some people in context of Jesus' words uh, here as he's teaching the disciples about not causing other people to stumble. We have the disciples as they saw Jesus's, or as they heard Peter's words about resisting and rebuking Jesus. We have the father of the demon-possessed boy. We have the would-be exorcist. And how Jesus' disciples tried to hinder him in his following of Jesus and serving Jesus and casting out demons. And so you think, well, how do I apply this? Jesus wants us to be careful and consider as we follow him and serve him and interact with one another that we are considerate and cautious that what we say and why we say it and what our motivations are do not cause other Christians to stumble. It at least needs to be a consideration. And if we need wisdom on this, I think it's something we should pray about. It is, it is hard, and many times you and I are thoughtless or full of ourselves and inconsiderate of others, especially those who are weak around us. But Jesus is driving home his concern that we be careful that we do not cause other of his weak children to stumble. Okay, so don't cause other people to sin, and then don't tolerate your own sin. He shifts here, and he shifts the attention to being careful of how other people are affected to our own concerns for ourselves. So don't tolerate your own sin. And... In Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 47, he references three parts of the body. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Here we have radical amputation. Radical amputation. Jesus is making it very clear that we are to have a serious concern, focused effort to dealing with your own sin and getting rid of it. Again, this is big picture for the Christian life. But the attitude we are to have is to be very serious about sin in our lives. We are to take a radical approach to sin in our lives. And not one of us as God's children is exempted from this. 
We are not to be casual about it. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 emphasizes this when it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And what follows that is a list of sins. Romans chapter 13 verses 13 and 14 also emphasize this. It says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision or you could say no forethought or no allowance could be translated that way for the flesh. And that is our sin to gratify its desires. Every Christian must be pursuing this. All of us have a propensity to sin. That means all of us are in the business of radical amputation. We are not to get comfortable with sin. We are not to justify sin. We are not to try to hide our sin and act as if we're different than that. We are to deal with it radically and honestly. Mark chapter 9, verses 33 and 34. And they came to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing in the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Again, this is a reminder that I don't think those disciples, any of them, intended to end up arguing about who was the greatest. But there is a propensity in all of us to sin in these ways or to sin in any way. So the question is, clearly, Are you dealing with your own sin? Don't cause other people to sin. Don't tolerate your own sin. And don't forget about the nature of hell. We're not going to dig into all the details here on hell. We're going to stay big picture. But let's look at Mark chapter 9, verse 43. Jesus, he says three different times he references hell. Similar wording each time. He says, it is better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. It is better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. It is better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two wives and be thrown into hell, where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. These are very serious words. And this can feel like confusing gospel words from Jesus. It seems like he is saying that if we are, we are to cut sin out of our lives so we don't go to hell. And clearly on face value, there, there is some truth to that, but there's also some confusion to that. There is a serious connection between sinfulness and hell. And we do not want to minimize that. Unhandled sinfulness without dealing with it in God's power is the pathway to hell. 
So the question is, can it really be? Can, can hell really be there? Can it be this bad? Can it be true? And let me just say that as we talk about hell, we must consider first of all that Jesus, for those who accepted him, took hell for us. And a characteristic of God's children is that they have truly, they are truly working towards dealing with sin in their lives. There may be periods of time of rebellion, of disobedience, but the characteristics of their life are that they are dealing with their sinfulness and God's power. So if the characteristic of your life is that you're not dealing with sinfulness in God's power, you have a reason to question your salvation, if at all you make that claim, and you have a concern for hell. That is the theme of the New Testament. There are times when it seems very confusing. Well, I can't have to worry about hell because I'm a Christian. And people think, I'm covered, I've prayed the prayer. A lot of people say that, but they don't have a pattern in their lives of dealing with their sinfulness. So according to Jesus' teaching, they have a concern, that they should be concerned that they are going to deal with the serious nature of hell. A friend of mine recently, we were just texting back and forth, and he knows God's word, he's grown up, he's very mature in the Lord, but he, still struggling with the nature of hell. Can it really be that hell is that bad? And yet, as we look at these things, we also have to consider that can it really be that heaven is that good? The presence of evil necessitates that there needs to be a righteous action from God. But also, never forget, as we struggle with the awfulness of hell, there is the true beauty of heaven and God in heaven in the new creation. Evil must be dealt with righteously. Therefore, the reality of hell is a non-negotiable. Don't cause other people to sin. Don't tolerate your own sin. Don't forget the nature of hell. And then finally, don't lose your usefulness. Mark chapter 9, verse 49. For everyone will be tested with fire. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with one another. These verses here that I just read are confusing for many folks and there's so many different opinions about how to interpret them but I want to just stick with the big picture that Jesus is giving just with all of this and he's not delving into a lot of the particulars although he did get specific about the nature of hell and specific about his admonitions the big ideas here are to treat others right and consider the weaknesses of God's children and care for them. Deal with your own sin. 
And this idea, this metaphor of salt is to retain your own usefulness. You retain your own usefulness by how you are considerate of others of God's children and also how you deal with your own sin. And then he ends it and he says, be at peace with one another. That's how he concludes the discussion. Be at peace with one another. So this ties it back to the to the big picture here that Jesus, as he's dealing with all these things, he ties it together and ends with be at peace with one another. His concern is, is as we relate to one another as his children and as we serve him, there are things we need to be warned about so we can avoid these mistakes. And we can continue to be useful for him. And bring him glory. So don't cause other people to sin. Don't tolerate your own sin. Don't forget the nature of hell. And don't lose your usefulness. These are Jesus' warnings about how to properly serve him. Naturally, because he is our Lord, he is all wise. And he knows what we need to consider. So may we in humility consider these things as we seek to serve him in the way that he would like us to do so. Take a few minutes and respond to the Lord.